Welcome to the Always Evolving Podcast. This is a podcast about living an awake, aware, conscious life. If it helps to evolve us as individuals, we will likely cover it at some point on this podcast. Because after all, we are always evolving and in all ways. I'm your host, Erica Boucher. I'm here today with Joe Sawyer. And Joe, the reason I wanted to interview Joe is I was introduced to him by my husband. I guess the two of you used to work together. And I, apparently you two had spoken and Brian told you about my book. And so Joe came over to get my book. And that was when we met. In that conversation, you told me your story about PTSD. And it was really fascinating to hear where you were, what your experience was, how you have learned to work with that and what you are doing with that information now. So today's conversation is specifically about PTSD from your own personal perspective and what you've learned about it. So Joe is not a licensed mental health counselor or a psychologist, but you are speaking from a first person account of this. So tell us what your story is back from what the kind of work that you used to do and the PTSD that resulted from it. So I was a fireman for a local fire department here in, in Orlando for almost 20 years. And in that 20 years, a lot of people don't realize, but as firefighters, we see the worst moment in people's lives. And in my career, I probably saw between four to 500 people dead or killed. And that's only like 20 a year. I think that number is much higher, but I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to place a number on it. And it broke me over time. At first, the job was amazing and fun and enjoyable. And I felt like I was making a difference. But there came a time that I, it was like somebody put me in boiling hot water as a frog. And I didn't see the change. But all at once, there was a huge change in me. And I didn't even realize how I got there. I had lost my happiness. I had started binge drinking a lot because we do ship work. So I couldn't drink on duty. But like when I would drink, I would drink, you know, a lot for a couple of days. And then I wouldn't drink for a couple of weeks, you know, and it always happened after I had like bad, horrific calls. And that led me to, you know, to three treatment centers in one year. I remember before I had gone to treatment, though, I was with my family, my wife and my kids. And my wife was playing with my kids on the floor and they were laughing and giggling. And I remember saying to myself, I wanted to join in, but I didn't, I didn't know how anymore. It had became a foreign um, land in my own house. Joy well, had become a foreign experience. Yeah. And again, I mean, we're going to the worst moment in people's lives. Nobody's calling us for barbecues. 911, you know, it's, it's somebody's worst day. So, yeah. you know, years and years of that exposure brought me to a place in my life I never thought that I would get to. Now, Probably about seven or eight years before I had gone to treatment, I realized there was something wrong, but I was 
I was embarrassed. I was, I didn't want people to think I was weak. So I tried to fix myself. I tried to find, I tried to read every book on happiness that I could find. And it, it, it helped, but I needed to let go of that job. And that job had become my identity. So it was, it was, it had such a grip on me that I was a fireman, paramedic, lieutenant, and I didn't know anything else. I mean, I was a, I was a paratrooper before I was a firefighter, lieutenant, paramedic, but like I learned that, you know, being negative and the worst moment in people's life, that became my reality. And so when I would get, you know, in a bad spot, it became almost hopeless for me to get out of it. And I would start to get anxiety, panic attacks, and depression. And a lot of people don't realize, but PTSD, at least for me and my experience, is it's anxiety and depression at the same exact time. So you get caught in these cycles of, you want to, I wanted to run, but I didn't know where to. In fact, I used to, when I was at my, some of my worst moments, I would just run away from my house. I didn't know what I was scared of. I didn't know where, where I was going, but I would run and get in my truck and, and just haul butt and end up at a hotel and just stay there, lock myself in, wouldn't tell anybody where I was at. And for me, I mean, that seems so crazy to me now, you know, but for me, that's back then, that's how I was trying to cope. And when I would go to work, I was fine. It was like I had my armor. You know, I was a knight in shining armor, I could help people. But when I left work, it was like I was stripped of everything. And it was so overwhelming that, you know, a lot of times drinking was my way of escaping reality because I couldn't escape those feelings. My life was just spinning out of control. I learned that I, something had to change. What was the I, moment? What was that moment when your knees hit the floor and you said, something's got to change? Do you remember that moment? I remember that I was just not happy. You know, me and my wife were at our wits end and we were just about ready to get divorced. I was trying to, I was clinging to that relationship, which when you're in a bad spot mentally and you're trying to cling to things, it it, it does more damage than good, you know? Mm -hmm. She was at her wits end. I didn't even know where my bottom was at this point. I ended up going to a treatment facility. They said that they, they dealt with PTSD, but they, they did not. And they just dealt, tried to deal with the drinking. But in my experience, I could never stop drinking unless I got to the root cause. Right. Their approach was stop drinking and then we'll work on this other stuff later. But and, and when I was there, I didn't feel and nothing against anybody else that was there, but I just didn't feel like I was like them. I was different. Even though we had the same, we were there for some of the same reasons. I just didn't fit. It was a lot of kids and just, I don't know. I just, it, it, it wasn't a good place for me at that time. So I came back, I was sober for probably 90, 97 days. I remember I was 
I just, cause I was, I went back to work and I wanted to drink. I wanted to escape my reality again after probably a few weeks of being there because it was just bad call after bad call. And just the pressures of, you know, doing that line of work. And I couldn't, I was trying really hard not to, to drink or do anything that was destructive, but I, it was too overwhelming. I remember I took my family on a, a trip down to Clearwater and, you know, I drank and I got drunk for the like next three days. It was probably a miserable experience for them. And it, you know, for me, I was miserable, but I learned at that moment that I was in really bad shape. Like I was, mm -hmm. I was so deep in this hole that I realized that I needed something, some other kind of help. And people had told me about, it's a, it's a place called the Center of Excellence and it's a treatment facility just for firemen. A lot of people don't know, but the leading cause of death for firemen is suicide. Our suicide rate is higher than our in-line of duty death rate. So more firemen die at their own hands than, than in the line of duty, which is wow. crazy to me. Mental health is a huge thing. We have our own treatment facility just for firemen. Nobody else can go. And it's a stigma that's in around the fire service. And I think that that stigma, because people are like, don't, if somebody gets PTSD, like don't hang out with that guy or, you know, you're going to go to that station. He's got the, the PTSD flu. I think it prevents a lot of people from coming out and saying, hey, I have a problem. I need help. And their only solution is suicide because they don't want to admit and they, they don't want to live that way. So, so you found the center of excellence. Even though that is geared specifically toward firemen, there's still a little bit of a stigma to going there for firemen. Like that's kind of, is that a last resort that firemen finally get themselves to go there? Is that, or is it something where, is there support that's offered on an ongoing basis before people feel like they're in that? No, I mean, there is, but it's such a testosterone fueled world that nobody wants to admit that, hey, I'm, I'm, this call affected me. This uh, scenario made me feel this way. It's a, it's a sign of weakness. And, you know, I'm not speaking for every fireman, but I'm speaking for, you know, the guys that I went to treatment with. And I'm sure a lot of others. So after I had gone to this vacation with my family, I, I ended up back at work and I was still trying to chug along trying to remain sober. And the defining moment where I went to get treatment was my last shift. I saw four people either killed or dead. It broke me. I mean, mentally, I didn't want to go back to work. In fact, I took a couple days off and I basically locked myself into my, a room at my father's house and just drank myself silly. And they were like, you got to get up. You got to go to work. And I'm like, I can't, I cannot go. I can't go. Somehow I reached out to a friend of mine and she had told me about that place, but I wasn't ready and, until this moment occurred. And when I called her, she, she said, don't just be, stay right where you're at. We're, we're going to, we're going to get you help. And she helped 
you know, she, she coordinated everything. And in fact, she came with my chief and they picked me up and they took me to the airport. And that's where I kind of started to make my way towards peace. And um, okay, so tell us about that journey. This is rock bottom and this is a dark place that you're in. And you, yeah, you're, yeah. you're lucky because, because unchecked, you might have been another one of those statistics that you were telling yeah, me. About. Yeah. When I left there, when I left the treatment facility, I felt like I could take on the world. I felt like amazing. I mean, they really do a great job of helping us with our PTSD. But when I got back, you know, I had like my job, they told me that I couldn't come back at that point. Okay, so um, let me interrupt. Are you, you said when you went to the treatment facility, so this is the second treatment facility and not the first one you were talking yeah, about? Yeah, that, this is the second one, but I went there twice. Okay. okay I went to the center of excellence twice. Okay. So I got back and my job was like, you can't come back. So I lost that. My wife was like, we're getting divorced. So I lost my family. Then I was living at like a sober house because they didn't want me to go home and and nothing against my wife, but like we weren't good. And my family, that environment wasn't healthy because it was still, they were still sick because they were dealing with me and I was still sick. And I, I, at that point I was better, but if I went home, then I would be putting myself in them. I would revert right back to where I was with the PTSD. Right. So at that point I went and I talked to my work and they're, idea of, of helping me was I could basically resign that day or I would be terminated 90 days or I could file to get my pension. Um, but it was like a medical pension. So at that moment, I had lost everything. I had, I had lost not, my, not only my family, but my job, that whole social network of friends and I had lost my identity. And I went to my mother's house and she wasn't there at the time. I started to, I, I, I grabbed the bottle of wine and I had bought this book called The Surrender Experiment. Uh, at the end of the book, basically he, this guy surrenders his whole life. And he, he, he basically, he, he has this awesome life and it's based on a true story. Basically, when at the end of the book, after I'd been drinking a couple bottles of wine and reading this book, I finished it in a few hours. I was like, universe, you think you can do it better? Just And I was like, go ahead, I'm done. Uh, and I didn't care if I lived or died at that moment. I had fallen asleep and my brother came and he's like, he was, he's a fireman too. To make a long story short, he called and had me Baker acted and I ended up... Uh, uh, you know, at this place while I was there, I didn't realize it, but that my brother taking me there was my first gift. Mm. Um, and I was miserable. I didn't want to be there, blah, blah. But looking back, that was my first gift. And then my second gift the next day, I was like, I got to get out of here. I have to find a way out of here. So I called the, the center of excellence and I said, Hey, I need to, I need, I think I need to come back. I need no more help. My, my second gift though, was my brother. He brought me a bag of clothes and I literally had the clothes. I had like a tank top on some shorts and some flip flops. 
actually I had shoes on and they had taken my shoelaces. So I was, I had nothing. And when he brought me clothes, it, I know it sounds so insignificant, but it was like, okay, I got something now. I can maybe, I can move forward a little bit. And I, I think that's when I made the phone call. And then the third day, I went down to breakfast and they, they kind of, you know, make you get in a line and they take you down there. And then I was coming back up and the nurse said, I need to, I need to talk to you. I walked over and when I got to her desk, she said, I don't know who you are, or what you did, but you're, you're going back to that treatment facility tomorrow. I mean, she said, you should consider this a gift because, and it, and it, and it, and it like blew my mind because I had read about on this book about getting gifts, not necessarily things that you can tangibly hold, but things that you weren't expecting, like things that were placed in my life at that moment. Uh, she gave me, you know, she gave me this big spiel about how, you know, when you get Baker acted, you have to have some sort of a letter from the courts to get you out of here. Cause you have to stay there for five days, five to 10 days or whatever. And I, I was getting out of there at four. Okay, consider this a gift. So to make a long story short, I got another gift and another gift, but I got on this plane and I was on this plane and I, 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 I started to literally cry. The stewardess must have saw me. So she kind of got me and she took me to the back of the plane, sat me down and I had my whole row. When I was sitting there, I noticed the lady next to me on her row, she had brought her dog. I kind of looked out, the, I tried to pet the dog and the dog wanted nothing to do with me. So I looked out the window, I started to cry. Like, I mean, not just a cry, but something I, ha I hadn't cried in probably 10 or 15 years. And it was one of those, <gasps> and, and where I was, was almost, sobbing. yeah, I was just, I was so beaten and, and, and so low. About 30 minutes into this cry, I noticed people started laughing and pointing and I could smell something. And I looked over and the dog had taken a giant poop on the floor. <laughs> and my mind, though, not my awareness, but my thoughts, this is when I finally had that breakthrough of there's two things going on in my head. My mind was telling me, we're not, we're already having a bad day. We're not doing that. This has nothing to do with you. Just, just, we're not helping that lady, just blah, blah, blah. And this lady was like 80 or 90 years old. She was barely, she was trying to clean up the poop, but she was shaking and she was making more of a mess. And I turned away. I was like, I'm not helping her. And right then at that moment, there was like a voice in the back of my head without words, but like a booming uh, expression from the universe that said, you said you were going to surrender, go clean it up. Wow. And I got kind of angry. I got mad. And I went and I cleaned it up. I told the stewardesses, I was like, hey, because they started coming around. I said, just give me some garbage bags. And I was being very direct. And they kind of looked at me strange. And I, they brought me all the stuff and I cleaned it all up. And I, I threw it away in the garbage can and I gave them the garbage bag. And I went back and I proceeded to cry. And I started to like really think about everything that I had lost. And I was like, at that, that moment, I think I was saying, how am I going to get home? I have no money. This is my last shot of, you know, trying to better my life. I proceeded to cry for the next probably 30 or 40 minutes until we landed. 
And we landed, I got my stuff on and I was, I was trying to get off the plane because I didn't want anybody to see me crying. I was just embarrassed. When I got to the front of the plane, then stewardess said, I need you to stand right here. And she pulled me to the side. I sat there and I waited for everybody to get off this plane. And I'm, now I'm like, man, maybe I shouldn't have been so direct. Maybe I'm, I'm in trouble here. And I started thinking like, what did I say? Da, da, da. And after everybody got off this plane, she came to me and she said, you know, you didn't have to do that. And I said, I know it was my good deed for the day. And she said, no, you don't understand. That was really, really nice of you to do that. And I said, okay, thanks. And she goes, here, I want you to have this. And she gave me a free round trip to anywhere in the United States. And wow. I had just been crying about not being able to get home. Sorry, I get choked up. But every day after that, for like, you know, and probably even to this day, I've gotten a gift from the universe, from wh whatever you believe in. But from that point on, I just surrendered my life. And one thing that I do consistently is I try to do something uncomfortable every day, something that I don't want to do. Because when I was at my worst, I was going towards comfort. My whole life was just falling apart and I just decided to surrender and go towards uncomfortable things that I didn't want to do in my life. Through that, my life became easier. When I went towards comfort, every time my life got harder. Uh, I mean, it's not what society tells us to do or, you know, they tell us to, hey, if you're feeling bad, it's okay. You don't have to do this. And I find that when I do those sort of things and when I go down that, un that, that comfort road, my life it just it's kind of just spirals out of control and it's not, there's no value in it for me. So I want to bring some attention. I want to I take a moment to, to really look at what you talked about. You've said a lot. A prominent theme here is about surrender, really allowing yourself to surrender. And I think that is such a powerful moment. And another thing that you mentioned is that it's really contrary to what we are taught in our society, because you're right. Our society teaches us to stay in control. And a big piece of that means don't give in to your emotions. In other words, dominate your emotions. And what I'm hearing is it was in the moment that you physically and uh, metaphorically fell to your knees and were overcome by the lifetime of emotion that had been suppressed and denied. That's the moment of surrender where you can't, you can't keep a lid on it anymore. And mm -hmm. you were grieving for, you were grieving for a lot of different things, not just like one <sighs> moment in time, but a lot of emotional energy that had to come up and come out. And and that's when life started to shift for you. I just want to insert yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe. I mean, yeah, and I, I believe that that's what we're looking at a lot, even even in the world today. My belief is that a big reason why we are witnessing what we're witnessing today is that because we have not been educated or in any way taught what to do with our emotions. People have no idea what to do with their emotions. They're, the, they're this really mysterious, uncomfortable, 
and some believe unnecessary thing that we just have to figure out how to put it somewhere, not really mm-hmm. deal with it. And because of this lack of emotional intelligence, people don't realize how much they're being driven by their emotions, how much yeah. the, their emotions are actually controlling them. So when we surrender and say, okay, I, I don't have control of this anymore. I don't know what to do with this energy anymore. In that moment, that blockage of energy is able to start moving again. It's almost like we have a dam that we've created and there's all this energy and pressure is building and building and building. And then all of a sudden we open up the dam and everything starts flowing again. That's what it sounds like happened to you. Yeah. In, in a nutshell, you know, and, and just to kind of uh, reiterate your point, a hundred years ago, they didn't really have AC. And so if you were hot, you were just hot. You just dealt with it. If you wanted to go somewhere a thousand years ago, you had to walk. You know, Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world by walking, you know, and being uncomfortable, carrying all your stuff. And I think that a yeah, hundred years ago, maybe more, um, excuse me, and, and more, uncomfort was just in our lives back then. And we live in a, a new age now where uncomfortableness, at least for me, was a foreign land. I, I didn't, I didn't want to be uncomfortable. And uh, uncomfortable is normal for me now. And I feel like you can't find yourself. I, I know who I am now. I'm happy. I'm at peace. I'm, you know, I, but I had to, I have to go to uncomfortableness to find that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even in my yoga classes, I, I teach, one of the main things I teach is embrace the awkwardness, because if you aren't willing to feel uncomfortable or awkward, you will not grow. You'll keep playing small. You'll keep, mm-hmm. you'll keep playing safe and small and you won't ever grow or evolve or expand in any area of your life. So absolutely. That makes total sense. Yeah. You know, I, um, you know, I thought back when my wife was pregnant at the time, how uncomfortable that whole or the whole pregnancy is. First, you get morning sickness. And then, you know, the woman gets, you know, she gets big and her, her back hurts probably. And, it, and then she, it gets even worse. She has trouble sleeping and she gets, you know, hungry all the time. And then it gets worse. She has, starts to have labor pains. And then it gets worse. She has the childbirth and then greatness. And I believe that nature teaches us this, but we, if we ignore it, then when we go towards comfort, then I feel like, um, we're, we, and just like you said, you know, we're not dealing with those feelings or those emotions and letting them go through us and pass like a flowing river. You know, we, we try to dam it up and uh, all at once, you know, it burst, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that emotional energy. It, and, and I've heard it described to me that, because emotional energy is energy moves, right? It has to move. And I've heard it described to me that depression is not an emotion. It is a result of suppressed emotion. And, and I believe if we look at the numbers and the statistics of depression, anxiety, addiction, suicide, they are at an all-time high. Statistically, mm-hmm. it's worse than it's ever been. 
And it's because I, again, I go back to this lack of emotional intelligence, lack of self-awareness. And that's part of the reason why I wrote my book. And it's, it's one of the reasons I do the work that I do, because when I came to that realization, you know, having a degree in communication and being an educator and a writer, once I had that realization, I remember thinking, people have to know this. I have to share this. I have to share what I've learned because we aren't being taught this. Nobody ever told me this. How did I not know this before? And, yeah. and, and so tell me, how has this impacted your conversations with people? How is this impacting the conversations and what you teach your children, for example? Um, you know, it, my, whole, my whole life has changed. I mean, I'm not even the same person anymore. In fact, when I came back, my two boys, they kept looking at me like confused. And I said, I, at one point, I think I said, what? Why, why do you keep looking at me? And he's my son, Tom, he doesn't speak a lot. He's like this stoic kid, you know, and he, he looked at me, he said, dad, you just, you smile all the time. I've never seen you smile like this. It broke my heart, but it also made me happy that I had found who I was and why I'm here. And if you don't find that and ask those questions, you will never, you will live your whole life searching. Mm -hmm. You will, you know, you will just look, you'll be looking for something and you got to go into a dark room or, you know, be by yourself or be uncomfortable. And you got, I don't know. I just feel like there's a whole nother world over here. And I, that and relationship with ourselves. And, and that's, a, that's yeah. another thing. People are afraid to go there because they don't know where to begin or it, it, they were, they were never told that it was important to, to really know who they are and how they tick and yeah. Yeah. Again, you that know, I, 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 I have to be, I guess my relationship with people is I'm a hundred percent honest. I'll tell you anything. I'll tell you about all my mistakes. I had to tell people I'm scared. I, when I went on some of these calls, I remember a lady threw a, a child in my arms that had been run over by a car twice. And this little girl's head was just flat. And I remember everything in my being was telling me to just drop this kid and run away. I just wanted to run away. And I, but I would never have told anybody about that when I was in working in that environment. But now I will, because to me, I had to say, Hey man, I'm, I'm just a scared and insecure man. But when, when I finally did that, it empowered me somehow. I, I, I'm, I'm not scared of anything. I don't, I no longer care what people think of me. Uh, if I could help one person, uh, with this message of complete surrender and just be honest with yourself. Huge, huge breakthroughs for me. Yeah, that's a beautiful, I mean, what a powerful, powerful story. And I'm so glad to have met you and have heard your story because it's one thing to deal with stress, to get overwhelmed with stress. And I think anybody on the planet can admit that there there's a quite a bit of there's quite a lot of stress to be dealing with today yeah. but when we talk about PTSD like trauma like post traumatic stress to the point where it's debilitating that is that's what's powerful about your story because it took you to the brink and back and you're able to 
to identify the thing that changed it for me, because you've said the word several times in this interview, the thing that changed it for me was when I learned to surrender. I had to surrender. I had to surrender. I guess that's the big takeaway that I want people to hear from this conversation because what we are taught is to have control no matter what. Never Mm -hmm. give up, never give in, never admit defeat, never show weakness, never, you know, never admit we, we were wrong. And in that, that need to have control is what makes us suffer. Mm -hmm. And that moment of humility and surrender is a beautiful moment. And you've talked about that moment. And from that point on, you've talked about gift after gift after gift. It's totally contrary to what society teaches and models for us. And yet it's the most powerful moment in a person's life. For sure. Thank you for your transparency and your- No um, worries. Your honesty to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, even um, when, you know, I started my own company now and me and my wife, after two years of being separated, we're, we're back together. But I look at mistakes and failure as the fuel for success. And I tell my employee, sometimes she makes mistakes and she hates to admit she was wrong. I say, no, 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 no. This is good. We can learn from this. This is going to make us more successful. Well, I'm glad we made this small mistake because if we didn't make it, we might have made something more catastrophic in the future. And I think mm-hmm. that going and looking at failures and defeats, I used to never want to admit those things. Like you said just a minute ago, I always wanted to hide it and, and try to be perfect. And that's, that's just an illusion that we make up in our minds. And, and it creates yeah. shame because yeah. we know we're hiding the truth. There's a part of us that knows what the truth is. And then there's this other part of us that's saying, no, it's not. No, it's not. Don't tell anybody. Don't show anybody. Deny it. And and Mm -hmm. it creates this deep-seated sense of shame. And there's no peace where there is shame. And that's why the the most vulnerable thing we can do, that's why I wrote, that's why the name of my book is called Showing Up Naked, because the most vulnerable and empowering thing we can do is be completely authentic, transparent, open, honest, and real. That's a powerful moment for a person to get to. It's a life-changing moment, you know. Um, You know, if you would have told me, and today is my 800th day of sobriety. Um, And I never drank every day, but if you would have told me that, Joe, you're never going to drink again, you know, 800 days ago, you would have hurt my feelings. And today, (laughs) today I'm like, I can't see my life with it. I mean, for me, I don't like to mask things anymore. I like to live life. Joe, I want to say thank you so much once again for making the time for this and for sharing your stories so openly and and transparently with no other intention in mind than to help spread awareness for people. I mean, you you have no other motivation. You're not trying to market a book. You're not trying to market a course. So I want to say thank you for that. And it's really a beautiful story. And I love the happy ending that you and your wife are back together. So yeah, thank you. It's really beautiful and I do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Today's episode has been brought to you by my book, Showing Up Naked. Showing Up Naked is about exactly what we talked about here in this conversation today. It's about becoming your own best friend. It's about getting to know, love, and trust yourself. It's about surrendering to the truth of who you are. I invite you to go on this journey with me. You can get your hands on the book at showingupnaked.com. And to learn more about my offerings, visit ericaboucher.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, namaste. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Ways Evolving. Please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think might appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, let me know by leaving me a five-star rating. Until next time, keep learning, keep growing, keep evolving.